Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about uh, trends in digital credentialing, cybersecurity, and Web3 that are making strong headwinds in the public and, and the private markets. And we have perspectives from one of our portfolio company founder and CEOs, Heather Dahl, and one of our investors at K Street, who also was a very early investor in, in Heather's company in DCO, um, Will Grow. So before we get into this, Will, I guess, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself and just share a little bit about your background, how you got here, and then we'll have you do that too, Heather, and then we'll get started. Hi, Paige. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me on the program. Good to see you guys. Um, Will Grow, uh, my background is in the defense and intelligence space, uh, where I did a lean bootstrap a startup company, um, grew it to about 300 people and exited that business a few years ago. Uh, a lot of the last few years were in the area of zero trust security, which led me right into a lot of blockchain and decentralized identity. And it's actually where I came across Heather and her team. So I am uh, today, I'm a few years into my new career as an active advisor and investor um in real estate and tech companies um and healthcare and just happy to be on the program thanks will heather thank you Paige. it's really great to be here with you today um i started working in what is now known today as decentralized identity or verifiable credentials just over a decade ago um, helping support some early research on how to reduce the impact of compromises and breaches on large centralized databases. And through that came the concept of zero trust and zero trust architecture. So I worked with John Kindervag, helping um, provide information for his research um, and Chase Cunningham, who was also a part of that very well-known names in the zero trust world. But the question that really came out of that early work was, if you never trust and you always verify, what do you verify against? A compromised centralized database? <laughs> and so that led us down the road of creating at least my, my participation in this world of decentralized identity to help solve that problem. And through um, you know, the twists and turns of emerging and early technology, here we are today with Indicio, and we support companies and multinationals around the world who are using and deploying verifiable credentials for use cases ranging from travel, hospitality, um, to financial tech, all the way to IoT. Awesome, thank you. And just for our audience, you know, I think most people know me, but I will say that I'm not a cybersecurity expert. We've invested a number of, of cybersecurity companies, so I think we know a good bit about it, but there is no one that knows this stuff better than I would say Heather and, and, and Will. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, just for everybody's sake, I'm gonna go through some definitions and have Heather, Will, feel free to jump in and just give us a good definition for these these sort of terms before we get into the, the topics. Um, and I think that will that will sort of help. And so just a definition and why it's important, and then that's fine. So the first one is, is digital credentials. A digital credential, often known as a verifiable credential, think of it really as an encrypted container that supports data that has been verified by the issuer who's created that credential or that container. 
And that is what is used to hold the data and share the data with permissions and consent with the organization who would like to receive it. And that's all done without any kind of direct um, integration because of that containered credential. Okay, and trusted digital ecosystems? I'll turn it to Will so we can play ping pong here, Will, back and forth. This is definitely better your area, but trusted digital ecosystems, in my mind, is the business layer and how an enterprise or a public sector is going to translate, get to business value from a lot of a uh, combination of emerging technology. Inherent in that um, trusted digital ecosystem implies a zero trust security architecture model. And even deeper within that, it implies a, a decentralized identity and verifiable credentials, which from an identity credential and access management system it is really the orchestrator for who gets control and access of what data at, at what time. And uh, Heather, will, I'm sure we'll go into a lot more detail, um, uh, but that's my high level view. Heather, you want to add anything to that? I, I think that's great. Yeah, we have a lot more to talk about with those yeah. later on. Let's in see this. the next one. The next one you have to throw out this page. Yeah, um, open source software and interoperability. Oh, um, that's a, that's a good one. What are uh, they, me, and why are they important? Right. Um, much of what we're moving to in this decentralized Web3 world is we want to move into a place where you're not creating all these fragmented systems that don't work together. The power of decentralized identity and verifiable credentials really comes to fruition when they're built upon an open source co core technology and bring interoperability. And I'll drill into what I mean by that. The open source technology, there are a number of open source code bases at Hyperledger. If you're really wanting to dig into it, you can go to Hyperledger, Aries, India, and Ursa projects. And there contains code for um, all the components of a trusted digital ecosystem, a ledger, the uh, software agents that are needed to issue and verify the credentials, even a digital wallet. Um, there's code in there. The other um, organization you can look to is the Decentralized Identity Foundation. And over there, they have open source projects around decentralized governance. How do these agents know when, where, what, why, and how to communicate and whether they have authorization to do that? And DIDCOM. Um, and that is the communications mechanism between all of these components um, in sharing that data. The reason why open source is so important and the, and the interoperability is for the growth and the realization of the values of these systems. When you look at the vision of the problems that organizations, multinationals, governments, universities, all kinds of companies around the world are solving for, it's being able to exchange verified data without a direct integration while retaining privacy, removing correlation, and having an individual or an organization or whoever is holding that data's consent. And in order to do that, there's more interest in being able to exchange this verified data across industries that may not have otherwise had a reason to do an integration across geographies 
across public sector and governments, um, and even across organizations who maybe are in the same industry but are competitive in nature. However, they find a mutual benefit in the sharing of a particular set of data. So the interoperability allows that to happen at every single layer. I'll flag the word interoperability in this space is it has turned into a buzzword. Everyone is interoperable, right? It's like everyone loves puppies. You have to say that you're interoperable. But for those who are looking at these solutions or learning about it, it's important to understand interoperability and verifiable credentials is often across seven layers. And so you have to dig in as to are the agents interoperable, are the credentials interoperable, are the ledgers interoperable? And so there are multiple layers to that interoperability. Interoperability sounds really easy and great on the high level, but there's a bit more to it. That's great. I think that was a great description. That's another topic we'll get into later, so I'm going to hold some of my thoughts on it for now. A um, couple other definitions, uh, issuer and verifier agents. Sure, I'll take issuer and I'll turn it to Will for verifier. An issuer organization um, creates the credential. They have authoritative data that other organizations um, could make the decision to trust. And they're the ones that create the original credential or container and put the data in that they hold and they sign it. And then they pass that credential to a holder. Oftentimes we think of that holder as an individual, but that holder can also be a company. It can be a thing. It can be a government. So that credential is, that credential is created by an issuer taking that authority data, putting it into the credential, and providing it to the holder. Now the holder decides who to share it with, and I'll turn it to Will to finish that. So on, on the verifier side, and I'll use travel as a use case, uh, the issuer might be the United States uh, Department of State for a passport or one of the uh, 50 states um, issuing a driver's license. Today, there are cards and placards and they have special uh, inks on them. Um, the verifier in the, in the travel use case would be the TSA agent as you're moving through customs and you're crossing borders. And the holder, um, as Heather was alluding to, would be the passenger um, who was actually holding a, uh, a, a, an approximation of that official a plastic card or passport. So where would something like clear fall into that, uh, those two definitions? Because I guess clear isn't really TSA per se, it's a separate company. Are they a verifier in that case? Clear could be an issuer, they could be a holder and they could be a verifier. We find that organizations sometimes um, they ingest information that they verify through their own um, diligence system and then they create that credential they can also consume the credential that they created so maybe one um, clear location airport creates a credential at dulles for instance and um, that credential is provided to the holder and then the holder ends up at lax and wants to use another um either a clear or even an, a partner organization, and they could provide that credential. Um, and because usually clear will trust their, or, or the issuer who um, is an issuer verifier trusts the credential they created, or the partner has other agreements with the organization, so they trust it. 
And that's what is actually very cool about this, is when an organization can assume multiple roles, it really creates power, not only in deploying this type of technology in an organization, especially if it's a fragmented, lots of data silos that don't necessarily communicate within the organization, it creates a lot of use cases within, but it also creates massive opportunities for partnerships without the direct integration. The key here is that the verifier who's consuming and ingesting the data with the consent of the holder does not need to phone home to the issuer to verify that credential. And what do I mean by phone home? That's checking in with the authoritative, you know, the authoritative issuer of the data. That creates correlation and privacy concerns. So the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you confirm the authoritative nature of the data without phoning home to the originating source of it? And that's where the blockchain comes in because the private keys and information about that credential are listed in a ledger. And so the verifying organization can check the blockchain in order to open the credential. And there are parts of that that they, they need from the, the blockchain. Not everything is on the blockchain, parts of it are. And they're able to pick up that information and open the credential and the issuer does not have to be directly involved. And that's so important to the privacy and the future of this technology. That's great. Okay, last two, um, distri distributed ledger network. Right, a distributed ledger, blockchain ledger. Um, it is the layer one of many of, of, of a verifiable credential, many of the solutions that are in deployment today. Um, the ledger, while a very important part of these ecosystems, um, I find it the least interesting right now. It's there as a lookup mechanism. Think of it as a phone book. You go there and check and verify dids, learn information about the schemas and cred defs that are within these credentials. Uh, network is created by a number of nodes. Those nodes are often distributed around the world. So if a few go down, the network will still be up operable. For instance, Indicio runs four networks, a test net that organizations use to start building with, a demo net because they need a, a stable network for those demonstrations, which we all know the stress involved in a demo and things going down. So you want a more stable network, right? So that the demo gods are on your side. We also have what we call a temp net. I call it the rage room. And that's a network specifically for destructive testing pressure testing and performance testing, which is really an interesting network because we stood it up last year. It signals at the ongoing maturity of this technology because commercial solutions are just not gonna go from demo straight into production. There's gonna be a lot of testing and that is why the, the TempNet was established. Um, if someone breaks the TempNet, that's fine, we go in and build it back up. And then the next part of this is the production network. And that is an immutable record that is created on that main net that is supported by organizations running nodes around the world. Um, organizations can also build their own network. They don't have to necessarily use a, a 
hyperledger indie network like Indicio runs, they can build their own network. And what we've done is Indicio is really, I call it democratizing it. We've put what we call um, hyperledger indie node on demand in the Google Cloud Marketplace. Any organization today could go to their GCP account and spin up as many nodes either to join the Indicio network or to create their own network, which is so important for the maturity and growth of this technology. The key part is that all those ledgers become interoperable. Perfect. The perfect way to tie it back. Last definition would just be digital wallets. I think this one is yeah. some people think is easy, but I think we should still define it because I think people get confused about this one more frequently oh, than that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, people get, I call it wallet mania, right? It's mm -hmm. all about the wallet. Do you have a wallet or building a wallet, wallet, wallet? Well, a wallet is great to hold some credentials in, but it's not so cool if you only have an issuer or you have nowhere to share your credentials. And I like to think of it, don't think, we're moving to the point where a digital wallet, it's not about a wallet and holding things, it's about the power that those credentials and that verified data have in creating relationships. And so the in my mind, a digital wallet is quickly transforming into an agent. And why do I say agent? Think of AI, right? Think of a virtual assistant, that this is an agent that acts on the holder's behalf to share that data, to create trusted relationships. Because really, in my mind, Web3 is about relationships. It's about replicating the human dignity that we have in our in our physical lives in the virtual world and the digital wallet is a very i call it v1 concept of what a digital relationship can really be and so i think it's important to think about a digital wallet and move it beyond that into an agent and ultimately it becomes that ai virtual assistant in your life great thank you heather and will um, I want to talk a little bit about the market for trusted digital ecosystems, but before we do that, maybe it's worth touching on who the major players are and, and sort of like just to put, give examples of that for people. So I'm thinking about um, DIDs, like you mentioned, Heather, um, enterprises and identity providers um, and, and who they are. And if there's any other major players worth mentioning, I think that would be helpful just for everyone to know. So I can, I can give some examples. I mean, DIDS, it's like a decentralized identifier. Think Norton, uh, LifeLock, Intrinsic, identity providers. You have like Auth0, everybody knows, Ping, ID.me, which is one of our other portfolio companies. Uh, and then you have enterprises that do this whole thing too, like Red Hat, IBM, Microsoft. And those are really the people, sort of like the, the, the players in the space. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know, Heather, we'll feel free to add on yeah. to that and then we'll talk yeah. about the market. I think where you start with the DIDs is going back to the beginning, and even this isn't exactly the beginning, but it's a good place, is the W3C. Um, there are specifications around decentralized identifiers and DIDs. And so regardless of the company that may be coming out with DID-based or offer DID-based solutions, the real goal is, are those DIDs working based upon an open standard, because that's the value that creates the future of inter interoperability, that open source code in which we can all build these solutions from. But when you, it's really interesting, Ping announced, I think it was, well, two, a week ago, two weeks ago, 
um, their decentralized identity approach to market, we're seeing organizations across the space from federated IAM providers to industry specific providers to organizations like Trinsic, like Nor Northern Block, like Matter, um, like um, Walt ID, Animo. There are a number of organizations who have been in this space and have deep roots into actually creating the did and did technology and specifications that those who are in the more of the federated identity space are picking up and going to market with. And I guess, is there, are there any other buckets that you would say exist out there? Like, which bucket would you put in DCO in? Right. Um, in DCO, I feel fits in the bridge of we are taking the DID technology and applying it to act solve actual industry problems. And that's moving us up the stack of, you would say, in providers, instead of just providing just a, a very specific technology, we're deploying that technology into existing systems. So the key here is you do not need to rip and replace your existing identity systems um, in order to get the benefits of verifiable credentials. And where I say that the Indicio is moving to is that trusted digital ecosystem. You're seeing this word ecosystem emerge from all kinds of companies in the space. And so Indicio is really a trusted digital ecosystem provider. For instance, one of our customers, CETA, S-I-T-A, who provides technology to the global air travel industry, are deploying DIDs or decentralized identity verifiable credentials to create a digital travel credential based on the ICAO specification. Think of that as like your paper passport, but in digital form. And so they're deploying that um, between governments and airlines and airports um, in order to provide that passport identity in a very privacy preserving non-correlation manner that doesn't rely on massive amounts of integrations as they go along. And so that really, that creates a new category in one way that is bringing together the best of all systems and extending the reach. Um, Will and I have spent a good deal of time talking about the different buckets of this market and how they all come together. Yeah, it is a really big and fragmented market. Um, yeah, I, I would say just putting in a, in a historical perspective, and I think Heather, you're the first person that really pointed this out to me. Um, if you look at uh, the waves of identity, um, the latest wave that we're in, known as federated identity, started with uh, some of the companies that you mentioned. So Ping and Okta and ID.me, congrats for being <laughs> them in your portfolio. Um, they were companies that were in the right place at the right time when this wave began and have a lot of mad respect for what, what they've done. Um, and the space that Indicio and a number of other companies are, and I'll mention actual uh, AXUALL in the healthcare space, um, are in are the beginnings of this next wave. So the really smart companies in the federated identity space can see this 
emerging technology as a way to enhance and extend their product lines. Um, but there's going to be a lot of new winners in, in this space. Um, and it's, it's just being created now. It's been in the works and in the background for at least, at least 10 years. And we're still in the early innings. Um, and having spent time with Indicio, I'm just stunned at how fast some of their live projects with real use cases in public sector and enterprise are, are just happening. So it, just from a historical perspective, it's a really exciting uh, place to be. And, and uh, what I think the public sector really likes about this is there's no vendor lock-in. Um, public sector enterprise spends a lot of money on IT. Um, honeymoon it eventually it is over and then they realize, oh my gosh, we cannot get out of this and it's costing us uh, uh, far too much. Um, and from uh, um, just the cookie world that we're living in, um, that was the, the very problem we all have with cookies and, and tracking is the very thing that federated identity was supposed to make go away and it didn't. So now is kind of the mulligan in the industry to try to uh, help what the public sector and enterprise wants, which is no vendor lock-in that gets back to open source and open standards. And trust inevitably, monetizing trust is about uh, just the speed of the transaction and lowering friction. So lowering costs, and that goes right to the bottom line for uh, for enterprise, which is so why they're so attracted to it once they get their head around, oh my gosh, this really is good for us. Yeah, I think this whole space is one that we've, at case you've always been interested in and invested in over the last 10 years, mainly because it's a revenue stream that it just never goes away. It's sort of a, a standalone, most resilient category of enterprise software that um, that that sustains in volatile markets because nobody's going to cut back what they're doing on security, if anything. Um, but I think there is a lot of, I don't know if you have um, thoughts on this, but a lot of uh, a trend right now of vendor consolidation. And I think that is going to be a challenge for a lot of these companies, but the sales cycles are, are lengthening and there's some consolidation in the space around that. And maybe it doesn't apply to all the companies, but it, it is, um, I think, a challenge. I talk about it from a consolidation, the space, um, as Will said, it has been, although it's new, it's 10 years, more more than 10 years new, um, and it's been working on it. But for a number of years, we had random acts of decentralized identity, like you talk about digital wallet. We had organizations that built a wallet. Well, that's great. What's going to go in that wallet? Um, and so you needed to have organizations they created. You had organizations that created issuers. Okay, you put that credential in the wallet. Now, now what? Um, you had random acts of verification, but as we talked about earlier, open standards, open source, they weren't necessarily interoperable. So you had all these random acts of self-sovereign decentralized identity. There was no spot an enterprise could go and say, just give me a solution that works. And so the consolidation that's been going on right now is that move to an ecosystem, even using that word as an ecosystem is only about two years old. And that was because as um, enterprises were going to deploy, they saw that they needed a cohesive ecosystem that was interoperable, worked together, could plug and play, and also plug and play with their partners and competitors and public sector 
and bring it all together. I think that has led to the first part of consolidation, that if you're an organization that has just one piece of an ecosystem, you need to make sure that you consolidate in to have the benefit of the entire ecosystem because a random act of decentralized identity or random part of a trusted digital ecosystem does not make a successful long-term company, nor does it create the value that I think everyone is looking to accomplish here. Yeah, I think that's really important. And to me, that's like the biggest takeaway on, on, the, on the market. But I would just wonder, Heather, like for those companies that have only one piece of, of this, they don't have the full ecosystem and they need to be able to do that to survive in this market. How are they going to do that? You know, or can they even? Abs they absolutely can. They can go to any of the open source communities um, at Hyperledger or Diff, um, and or they can go to you know any of these identity like Cooping or Coal European Identity Cloud conferences coming up in two weeks. Um, and there are organizations there that have ecosystems they can plug in into and play with. If some organization has an incredible wallet but it needs to be interoperable with a larger ecosystem, they can go there and find partners and become a part of it and consolidate into that ecosystem. For instance, today, I'm actually at the Internet Identity Workshop in Mountain View um, that's held twice a year at the Computer History Museum and stepped aside to, to have this conversation. But what goes on in an Internet Identity Workshop is exactly that page. Organizations come with what they have built, um, where they want to go, ecosystems they want to be a part of, businesses and deals they want to sign. And that consolidation is happening in these open source communities and at these type of identity events. And why do you think there is such a growing need? I mean, there's some obvious reasons here, but a growing, even, even more so a growing need now than there was five, 10 years ago for this digital credentialing. Um, you know, and I know that a lot of that has to do with fraud costs and the the, the fraud issues that have just increased dramatically. But I'm, I'm curious if you have other if you guys have other thoughts on it. Well, my personal theory is the pandemic. If there was ever a time when we realized we needed verified data from industries that may not necessarily have communicated or had direct integrations, it was that first few months of the pandemic, right? We were trying to pull data everywhere. If there's any, any industry that illustrated that, it would have been travel and healthcare. Why would airlines before the pandemic ever needed to access medical tests or proof of vaccination before the pandemic? But what it also illustrated was an increase in the amount of fraud because suddenly our lives moved digital, you know, 100%. And we had very rudimentary ways in sharing verifiable data. And most of those ways that we had were complex integrations that couldn't move fast enough, or they cost a lot of um, money, which excluded all kinds of organizations from getting that verified data. I mean, that's my personal antidote. Will, what's yours? Uh, I'll have, I totally agree. And I'll have to go uh, also in a historical context, add privacy to the mix. So after 9-11, um, privacy was in, in legislation, it was completely out of hand, and then 9-11 happened. And then it 
the whole, the whole world changed and privacy got put on the back burner. COVID uh, totally blew it up. So again, as, as the technology federated identity is in decline and this new technology is taking over, um, you know, the cookie world and privacy um, is just has never gotten back on the plate from a policy standpoint, at least in the US. It's uh, EU is a little bit ahead, but the, the US is so unique. You have you have policy, privacy policy at the federal level, and each state is going to have its own, well, some of them already do have their own privacy policy. So if you're a US consumer or enterprise in the United States, you, you've got a it's a minefield of complexity for, hey, am I okay on the federal level, but in Virginia, but not Colorado? And herein lies where decentralized governance comes in and the beauty of zero trust architecture, which takes the policy of federal in the US plus all the states and puts them in the machine so they can be applied in, a, in a, an affordable way for an enterprise in uh, a low friction way if you're just a citizen of a state. Um, and if you're in the public sector in a way that you know you have oversight and control and um, uh, governance in the roles of being an issuer or verifier of citizenship and other documents. Well, you know that the privacy and public regulations, it's such an important point um, on the adoption of this especially in the U.S., I will often hear, no one cares about privacy. And that is becoming more of a U.S. opinion because I actually spend the majority of my time with companies outside the U.S. because their regulations have moved um, quicker in protecting, you know, individual privacy. And I always say, okay, no one cares about privacy, but do you think privacy regulation and laws will go go backwards and reduce the privacy rights? Or do you think they're going to continue to become more expansive? And the answer is usually privacy legislation regulation requirements are going to continue to grow. Okay, well, how are you going to deal with that as a company, as a government, as an organization? And that's where the importance of verifiable credentials comes in because it allows you to meet those privacy regulations immediately. You don't have to wait. It allows you to do so in a cost-efficient manner. And so what it does is it keeps um, organizations in a place where they can be flexible and agile, that no matter how quickly countries outside of the U.S. in which we may want to do business and must meet their requirements, we can quickly scale our businesses and adapt them to meet that. Or as the U.S. continues to move at the state, local, and federal level, we have the technology so we can quickly deploy to meet those privacy regulations. Totally agree. Anything else you want to touch on related to the market, the marketplace in general? We, I mean, it goes, it goes back to the markets. The markets for this um, are growing 
so quickly in the EU, in Latin America, Canada is Canada is a leader in this technology. The Caribbean, another area that is very focused on this. Asia, uh, New Zealand and Australia, we see this technology being built and deployed. Singapore, um, we are seeing Middle East is, has a number of projects around um, this technology. We see this market growing so quickly. And if you, if I look back in my past 10 years, in the last three years, there has been more advancement, traction, and maturity than my entire previous seven years in this. And if I look at the past six months, it's like every day is a dog year right now. It is moving so quickly. And it's hard to even keep up with it some days because organizations are, I've never seen this type of traction um, in this technology before. And Will and I talk very often, almost daily, and sometimes it's just mind-blowing to see the sudden traction since last fall. And when I say traction, this isn't slide decks. It's not doing some podcasts and webinars talking about a vision. These are companies that are building and deploying commercial solutions to market. And that is what's absolutely incredible going on right now. Yeah. Do you, do you think, one last thing, and then we can move on from this, but mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, I mean, anyone that spends a lot of time traveling globally or, or spends time with international companies, you can see them embracing this, just like you were saying, even in the way that like Europe dealt with COVID and the pandemic and their ability to deal with it quickly and to be able to, you know, create a government um, issued sort of app that could verify your medical records because they already sort of had a lot of that infrastructure set up was just incredible and allowed them to not have it nearly the number of problems that we had in the U.S. But I'm but I'm curious, like if you think there for the U.S., it will continue to trend in that direction. But is there like a tipping point for the U.S. where suddenly it starts becoming adopted like overnight? Or do you think it's going to be sort of a slow burn? Um, you know, not that it's slow. I guess it is it is speeding up. But um, but I'm just I'm curious your thoughts there. I think it's um, infiltrating into areas of our lives that are becoming a requirement. And the, and the key is, is you're going to start using it, but may not even know it. <laughs> That's a really important part of this is that it should be so um, ubiquitous and frictionless that you don't even know you're using a verifiable credential. And three weeks ago, there was a milestone in my life. Um, I legally crossed a border using a IK specification digital travel credential type one on a verifiable credential. I created my verifiable credential using my US passport in my kitchen and standing at my kitchen counter and my chip. It created that DTC in my phone, which I used to then clear a border. I cleared the border into Aruba before I even left my home for the airport. And I used that to facilitate my travel journey. And when I landed, I went to the E-gate and right on out. And first of all, that was in the existing immigration system. This was not just some kind of side gated um, project. It was in the immigration system. And to have a moment where for so many years we talked about, about the day when we'll be able to cross borders with this technology, I crossed a border 
It actually well, happened. It, it literally. A decade years <laughs> work. I, I um, have this photograph that I want to put it, you know, practically on my refrigerator, but um, it's in my device. But, and I was not the only one who did this. We had travelers coming from Canada, uh, the EU, Netherlands, um, and the US all using a verifiable credential. But that shows that that point will happen, but the average consumer individual may not know when that point has happened. And that is the beauty of this. We see efforts, for instance, in the EU with the EU digital wallet. Um, we see in Canada, the provinces are creating a digital citizen credential that will go into a digital wallet using a decentralized approach. We see governments clearly in the Caribbean, like Aruba, who are leaning into a verifiable credential to create a seamless experiences for tourism and travel. We see this in financial services in Japan and Asia. All of these types of deployments, I don't think the that your grandma is going to know she's using it, but she's going to use it. That's the beauty of it. And I think that's something that gets often overlooked is just the convenience and simplicity of these kind of systems once they get deployed. It's incredible. And it can do so much, I think, for the economy and organizations in general when they when this, this stuff starts to get more adopted. Um, but that's a cool story. Thank you for sharing that. That was in Aruba, you said? That was in Aruba. That was a SIA. Um deployment of a verifiable credential. And it, it was, you know, they, CETA's been working on this um, technology for over three years, and they were the first to deploy a IKODCC type one on a verifiable credential. It was uh, pretty amazing to see. The key part is they are also committed to open core, open source, open standards to facilitate this across the world. And it's not just in travel. Um, we have organizations that are using a verifiable credential for bank account information, um, for identifying sensors that are reporting mine data into regulators, um, all kinds of use cases. But what's so cool is when you do this and you don't really realize the technology behind it, and all you know is that it created a really terrific experience and it provided the ability for the person who is, you know, exchanging that data to provide that consent and saying, yes, I am willing to share this personal data about myself in this case to cross a border. Yeah. And I think also consumer preferences are, are like once you've experienced it and you know what it is, then you start to want it more. And even in the U.S., I think it's something like, I forget what the number is, but over 50% of, of, uh, of, uh, of banking consumers want a passwordless login option. And they're and, starting to drive that. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's great technically. Like, I, I'm sign me up first to get rid of all my passwords. I'm like, I've just decided that if I have to create a password, I don't need it in life. <laughs> but the, the thing here is, despite my headache, what the border crossing did or what this passwordless login is going to is it is giving me a direct relationship to the other entity. 
For instance, crossing the border, I trust the government of Aruba because I want to go to the beach. And I've made a, a decision, I want to go to Aruba because I will feel safe there, I will feel welcome there. And therefore, I trust them to share that sensitive passport data. And that's really important. What was that about? It was about my relationship with the government of Aruba. When it comes to the bank credential that allows for passwordless, I am sharing it with my bank or my institution directly, not through a third party, not through some middleman, directly because I trust my bank and I want a relationship directly with my bank. And because of that trust, I'm willing to share more information about myself or I'm able to know that they respect me and they only need me to share certain bits of information. And that's between me and my bank. And that's so important for building that personalized relationship. But do you think this is going to impact, and then and then and then we can move on to the next topic. But do you think this will impact companies like Plaid, who have sort of built their business model around not having those direct relationships with your bank and other financial institutions? I think this adds to Plaid. There is, I think, use cases where maybe not having that direct relationship is vital, important, or valued. But when you go to so many conferences and you talk to companies, they really want that direct relationship with their customer to build the loyalty, to be able to fully sell the opportunities that a customer has to gain value from what the company is offering to know that the data that they're receiving from their customer is actually their data and it's up to date and it's real and that is what they want. So much of the data that we receive about our customers is dated and it doesn't even apply to them. And there's so much junk data out there that what it allows organizations to do is to get that authoritative data where they can make immediate decisions knowing that it's factual data at the time it was shared. I think that's really important to building the relationship. So this isn't ripping and replacing, I think necessarily what Plaid is doing. What it's offering is a layer of the future, the horizon, what we've always wanted is that direct relationship on top of it. And so we get the best of both worlds. Great. I'm going to flip to the the last topic, uh, just in the interest of time, which is sort of around the venture community and how things that it, that we're looking at it and the things that this this sort of industry, the topics that matter there. So, like in in I think last year it was 18 billion was invested into companies in this space over over 700 deals um, in 2022, and it just is continuing to grow. I mean, the market has changed this year, so we'll see how how that pans out, but it is a really big space in venture capital. And I want to talk a little bit about zero trust architecture, and maybe you can share some thoughts there, Will and, and, and Heather. Uh, sure, I'll start, but Heather is certainly the expert there. I know enough to be really, really uh, dangerous. Um, You're so and, humble. <laughs> uh, Heather mentioned um, one of the founding fathers of zero trust, Dr. Chase Cunningham. And I know Heather and he go uh, way back and you know, I was listening to a, a, a podcast he did a, a while back. I uh, hadn't seen it in a while and just wanted to refresh my uh, memory. But um, he, he said a lot of the things that uh, we're hearing on, on this call. And you know, the, the biggest one is the perimeter is dead. And COVID just blew it out of the water. And the perimeter is a security mentality uh, built around firewalls. So if you build this wall and this moat, 
everything inside the perimeter is safe and everything outside is not. And I love one of the uh, anecdotes he used, which was uh, talking about the Roman Empire and why we call some malware Trojans because of the, uh, what we all know that happened in history. A Trojan horse showed up, armies jumped out, bad things happened. Um, and in the security uh, field, zero trust architecture as a, as a term has been just so hyped up and misused and, and abused, but at, the, at its purest sense. And what uh, Dr. Chase Cunningham did in his early work uh, at Forrester and now is uh, uh, every analyst talks about zero trust um, and that whole, whole market is about this paradigm shift of which I believe uh, decentralized identity, identity credential access management is at the very heart of it. Um, so you will see, talk about in the US, you see it more and more in NIST uh, special documents, you see it in standards, you see it more in White House um, documents coming out that this is a good general direction for everybody to take. It's mandated for DOD um, and probably at this point, uh, other agencies as well. Um, we talked to people in the identi identity space in the community. They got all excited, um, as I, I did, and many do, just because they realized, oh my gosh, this is going to make things better for everybody. Uh, it's better for enterprise, better for public sector, but my privacy is preserved here. Uh, we have just got to shout this on the mountain because every as a, as a society, we all benefit from it. Um, and capitalist uh, investors and founders can take advantage of it. Um, it's just one of those rare, every, everything wins. And maybe I'm just being too optimistic and look, looking through the world with uh, rose-colored lenses. But you know, these days, you, you need a little bit of hope somewhere. Um, this is just a really interesting space. So I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, that was my response. Yeah. Definitely. I wonder, Heather, if you have a perspective on it, but I, I, I tend to agree. Well, I think that's part of why we're passionate about and really like the space uh, and what it can do for, for humanity as a whole in the long run. It, it really makes me think about early um, in March when the White House released its national cybersecurity strategy. And that document had a clear theme. And it, for me, it was absolutely compelling. And it said, we must ensure the internet remains open, free, global. It said interoperable, reliable, and secure. But what was really important for me was that it talked about how everything needed to be anchored in universal values that respects human rights and fundamental freedoms. And the internet has lacked a reliable way of doing that because it lacked a reliable way to verify people, to verify data, to verify things. And ultimately, it really lacked that trust. And in order to build an anchor of universal values, in order to respect human rights and to respect our fundamental freedoms, you have to have digital trust. You have to be able to deliver digital dignity. And that is where decentralized identity and verifiable credentials really are, in my mind, a foundational way to implement the White House national security strategy. 
And it's as we've seen, it's it's not just the White House that is thinking this way. This is a theme that we see from around the world. And as Will talked about, we've gone through some really challenging years recently. But when it comes to our privacy, we've gone through challenging decades. And we're finally at the point where I start to see things coming together where we are finally at the point where we have our digital dignity that is not necessarily anchored into another provider holding custody of my identity. And I finally, as a human, have the right to share what I want to share it, when I want to share it, um, and organizations and others have the right to decide what they're willing to accept in order to make decisions that affect their business, their government, or their organization. Yeah, that, thanks, Heather. I think that's great. I, I, honestly, thank you guys both for being here and sharing these thoughts because I think it's so important for our audience to understand this space, and it is a complex space, and it is changing all the time. And I think there's the, you know just the trends we talked about today are the kinds of things we want to be looking for and thinking about in the solutions that other startups are are bringing to the table to kind of continue to build on this ecosystem and and really make it a reality for us in the US and and you know the whole world. So thank you guys for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Any any final thoughts? I, I am a really lot here. Yeah, I am really excited for what is happening now and what will occur in the next uh, months and next few years. Um, we, as I mentioned before, we've never seen this momentum and um, it's truly exciting to see verifiable credentials being moved into commercial solutions and to see them being used by governments around the world. I was just gonna say, one of the things I love about uh, my new career in the venture capital community and working with smart syndicates like K Street Capital is just all the brain power, uh, just all the really smart people, lots of new business models, different ways of looking, looking at things. Um, I just learned so much from it. And either because I'm biased uh, or I'm just so passionate about this space, Frequently, very frequently, I see the importance of establishing the identity and the security ar architecture in the very beginning, um, not at the MVP level, but uh, pretty shortly after that, because if you try to layer it in later, it, you can do it. It's just a little bit harder, and it's, it's, it's a careful balance to strike because at the beginning of a company, you just got to move fast, you have limited cash, and you just got to prove your point. Um, but I guess my, my passing, passing uh, point to all this is uh, if you're a founder, regardless of the space, do pay attention to it. it it's, it's something that you're, will be attractive to you at some point. You're going to interact with it at some point. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's good advice for, for all the, the founders we have and, and the investors, frankly, that, that listen to our podcast. So, well, this is great. Thank you guys so much. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.